Go John chapter 7. Actually, it's, it's John 8, but it's 7.53 and 8. So, we'll start there. Can we stand for the reading of God's Word? I'll stand with you. Let's stand. Um, matter of fact, let me just, as you're standing, um, some of you may not find this passage in your text, or some of you may find this passage somewhere else in your text. So if you don't see it in your text this morning, or if you see a footnote in your text this morning, I'll explain why that is in, in just a moment. But for now, we are in the 7th and 8th chapter of the book of John. Okay. Verse 53, and it's right next to chapter 8. They, each, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and brought her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he, once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Those who have ears, let them hear the word of God. You may be seated this morning. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. We do thank you, Father, for your word that has been passed on and preserved for us. We pray that this morning as your word goes forth that we would be encouraged in the midst of challenge. We pray, God, that as we go through your word this morning that you would open up our ears and our hearts to hear your truth. And Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you become more. I pray, God, that you would remove me Help your people not to see me or hear me, but see you, hear you, obey you, respond to you, worship you, love you, as you are so worthy of all of those things. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. So as you look at this text, you may see a footnote. Do you all see the footnote in your text there? Yes. Let me ask real quick, my brother Tony, can, can you bring me some water? Thank you, brother. You may see in this text that it says most manuscripts or the earliest of manuscripts do not contain John 7:53 through 8:11, which means this. Now, I'm going to I'm going to trek really slow in the beginning here so that you really get this, and then we'll pick up steam as we go on. All right? Which means this. The earliest copies of this text that had been collected by scholars, that had been collected by those uh, archaeologists, do not contain 
the passage that you and I just read. Now, thank you so much, brother. For many people, that causes a great deal of concern. You mean that I'm reading something that was not in the original text? There's a portion in the Bible that was not originally penned by the disciples? How do I handle this? As far as we can tell, and when I say we, I mean the best scholars of textual criticism. That's an important word if you're taking notes. Textual criticism. They find that this passage was not in the original text, may not have been in the original text. You may ask questions like, well, then what's it doing there? And why are we studying it this morning? And why is it even in the Bible? What, what, what is this all about? But before you lose your faith, before you throw away your Bible, let me help you out. This is not the only place where there are texts that are not a part of the original text. So hopefully that adds to your faith. There's also a text in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And there are also many different variants. Now, if you're taking notes, variant is an important word as well. There are many, many different variants in the Bible. You may ask, now, how is that supposed to, be, supposed to make me feel better about relying upon the infallibility of the word of God that I'm holding in my lap? First of all, the translators of these texts and these versions are not hiding the facts from you. That is very important to remember. These facts are revealed for you. They're not hidden from you. So that's one way or one reason that you can trust them. In fact, the translators of the Bible are very clear about which portions that they find do not necessarily appear or may not appear in the original text. Now, I say necessarily or I say may not because we don't have the originals. So we don't necessarily know exactly, but from what we can gather, all the manuscripts that have been gathered, all the manuscripts that coincide or at least are heading in the same direction, we find that this passage and others, most specifically Mark chapter 16, do not belong in the original text. There are also within all of these things variants, and we're going to say this word again in just a moment. The original texts are known as the Apocrypha. Oh, no, no, no. Autographa. Be very careful. Apocrypha is Catholic. Autographa. Okay? Autographa simply means original. Original autographs. Okay? So, autographa. Those are known as the originals. And those autographas, those original texts that were penned by the apostles, by the disciples, by the disciples, they were written and then sent to the churches. When the churches received these autographas, they read them to the local church. And before they passed them on, they copied them. Now, the church holds to the fact that the word that was originally written, the autographa, the originals, was inspired by God. But the copiers were not inspired by God. Meaning, the writers of the original text were infallibly used by God to write down infallible word of God. They were superintended or trusted with the responsibility to write down what the Holy Spirit has said. But those who copied what the Holy Spirit has said were not superintended by the Holy Spirit or were not inspired by the Holy Spirit 
in the same way as the original. Does that make sense? Therefore, there are variants within the text. But from all of the texts that we have collected, we are able to gather a, a more clear understanding of what the text means or what the text said. Therefore, in gathering the text, don't lose me now, in gathering the text, we have what we have now in our laps as a result of gathering of text. And as they gathered, they collected, they put together what was probably originally said or originally meant. Now, what percentage of these variants or differences do we have in the Bible? So when I look at my Bible, how much of this that I'm looking at is what was originally said? 99%. 99%. There is actually less than 1% of a variant between what we have and what we think was originally wrote. That causes you a lot of trust, or that should cause you to have a lot of trust in your Bible. That what we've gathered and what we've collected of all of the things that we know are different, not there, or variant, meaning different, less than 90, less than 1% of what we have is probably different than the original text. Does that make you feel better? Good. It should. Now, not one of those variants change one major doctrine in the Bible. What would some of the variants be? Now, some of the larger differences are Mark 16 and what we're looking at today, John chapter 8. Some of the smaller variants are merely words. Those words would be to, the, we, our, but, because. Those are some of the differences or those are some of the variants that are probably in the hundreds. But they don't change one single doctrine, major doctrine, or any doctrine of the Christian church. Meaning this, nothing changes. Although there are variants, nothing has changed. You can find all those variants, stack them all up against everything that the Christian church has agreed and affirmed, and you will find no difference as far as what the church affirms. Does that make sense? So back to the text. The overwhelming consensus among textual critics is that this portion was most likely not a part of the original book of John. At the same time, these same textual critics overwhelmingly agree that this portion of Scripture is most definitely apostolic in its origin. Meaning this, that it may not have been written in the original text, but it definitely finds its source from the apostles. So although the apostles didn't write it, the story definitely came from the apostles. And there's no reason to doubt that it did not. Apart from those textual critics that I'm just mentioning, some of the scholars who, and theologians who also agree with what I just said are James White, D.A. Carson, R.C. Sproul, and John Calvin. And that's a who's who, and I can mention more, but that's a who's who of theologians who also say we should not for one second doubt that this story is apostolic. Now, how could it be apostolic if it was not written down? Most likely it's a part of oral history. Most likely it's a part of a story that the church fathers, which is the apostles that they used to tell in the churches, but was not necessarily written down. So when they came to visit, it was something that they told of Christ. And it's something that somebody along the line wrote down as it was passed on. Does that make sense? Now, I am treating this passage as nothing less than the word of God. 
I'm treating this passage as nothing less than the Word of God. Here's why. Because R.C. Sproul, John Calvin, D.A. Carson, and James White are treating this as nothing less than the Word of God. So I'll err on their side rather than on my side. So because this passage, now this is where we start to get into the passage. Because it does not necessarily flow with the text, you'll find that it's almost out of nowhere. That, that Christ is dealing with the Pharisees, and then all of a sudden there's this woman, right? That's why they, this text is actually more fitting in Luke chapter 21, and in some versions you'll find it there instead of here. Because it flows better with the text, especially it flows better with the timeline of what's going on um, in the life of Christ. So, as we expound upon this text, I believe that you will see that this passage is not primarily about an adulterous woman. The story is not even primarily about the hypocritical religious leaders that were opposing Jesus and setting up this woman for death. Instead, I believe that this passage, as we study it, will point you toward the humility, the wisdom, the judgment, and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that he's the star of this book of John, that he's even the star of this passage, even though this passage is not found in the earliest of manuscripts. I believe that Christ is the star of this passage. And in this, his humility, his wisdom, his judgment, and his forgiveness shines through. So let's go into the passage this morning. First, the humility of Christ. If you're taking notes, number one, the humility of Christ. John chapter 7, verse 53, which takes us into John chapter 8, verse 1. They each, or they went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The action of Jesus is reminiscent of Jesus's pattern during the week of his passion or the passion week, the week through which Jesus Christ would be crucified and tried or tried and crucified. It was this passion week that we find Jesus traveling to and from Jerusalem with pauses along the way on the Mount of Olives. This is why other versions place it in Luke chapter 21. But nevertheless, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And when everyone goes to their homes, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and possibly spends the night there. Jesus may have spent the night on the mountainside or he may have gone to stay with uh, Mary, Martha and Lazarus who lived near the Mount of Olives. But it would not be uncommon for Jesus to live or, or sleep on the side of a mountain. He's done it many times before. That Jesus, the one by whom and through whom all things have been created, has no place to stay. As everyone is going home, Jesus is going to the place that he usually finds as his home, which is anywhere he can lay his head. Why make this point? Why even mention the fact that he has no place to lay his head? Because the fact that the creator and savior of the world has no place to lay his head once again illustrates and highlights his humility. It once again illustrates and it highlights the condescension of Christ in the incarnation. Meaning this, that when he emptied himself and took on the very form of a bondservant, you and I, becoming in likeness of men, he removed himself from every kind of privilege, from every kind of comfort of his deity. In Luke chapter 2, we are introduced to Emmanuel, God with us, who is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger 
Why? Because there was no room for him. In the end, during his earthly ministry, we find our Savior speaking words of humility to his followers, his would-be followers, and saying to them, listen, in Matthew chapter 8, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The text notes that when people go home, Jesus goes to the temple and teaches. There are no reports of miracles. There are no reports of healings. There are no reports of exercising of demons. Rather, there is only Christ equipped with the sword, the word of God. And it was through his teaching that all people came to him. In his humility, Christ, who has no place to lay his head, does not come with gimmicks. He does not come to market himself. He makes no false promises in order to promote himself. Instead, he speaks infallibly the word of God and called all who have ears to hear the word of God spoken by God in the flesh. And he did so in the the typical rabbinical style of the day in the posture that all rabbis took whenever they began to teach the same posture that I'm taking today. He began to sit down and teach them all throughout Jesus's ministry. He displays this kind of inspiring humility, born in humility, lives as a humble son of a carpenter. He began his ministry as a powerful teacher, calling people, his people, his sheep to repentance, to follow the king who lived with no place to lay his head and ended his ministry with a crown of thorns placed on his head. And he carried the weight The sins of every people or people from every tribe, nation and tongue on his shoulders. He took our burden and he was buried in a tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, because if there was no tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, he would have no place to be buried. The humility of our king. This was our humble king's first appearance. And his first appearance will be completely different. Than his second appearance. He will not come in humility when he breaks forth from the clouds with the shout of trumpets. When he appears again, he will break through the clouds in exaltation and glory and power. In Matthew 24, he will appear with great power and glory. In Matthew 26, he will appear on clouds of heaven. In Revelation 1, every eye will see him. In Matthew 25, he will sit on a glorious throne. In Revelation 19, he will rule the nations with power and majesty. Oh, he is humble. And he will return in majesty. But this is our humble king. Number two, the wisdom of Christ. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placed her in the midst and they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. As Jesus is teaching, now get the scene, he's teaching in the temple. And there are people that are gathered around him. And as he is speaking, there is a crowd that is heard in the distance that begins to get louder and louder. Maybe a woman that is screaming for her life. As men drag a woman through the streets and throw her, barge through the crowd, throw her down on the ground. 
this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The crowd becomes silent, just as you are now. Jesus looks at this poor woman who probably is on the ground, tears on her face, hair covering her face, and maybe has a cloth to cover her shame. And Jesus looks at this woman, and now he is proposed with a test. Who's doing the testing? The scribes, the the experts of the law, and the Pharisees. We've heard of the Pharisees before. The Pharisees arose. This is important for you, especially as you hear more about Pharisees. They arose during the silent years. During the 400 years of silence between Malachi and John, there arose a group of people who wanted to call people back to obeying the law of God, which people began to ignore because there were no prophets in the land. So the Pharisees, this group, this group of called that would later be called separated ones, began to call people back to obey God. They began to call people back to revere God. And they became known as separated ones. They were the reformers of their day. They were you and I. Wow. Amen. <laughs> they weren't always evil. They were calling people back to God. But over the years, their zeal for God turned into legalism. And when they see this man who was calling people to repentance, that group of ancient reformers now sees that they are the ones who need to be reformed. And they hate Christ. Somewhere, again, they turn their zeal to legalism. And we've seen them many times in the book of John. They were the ones who came to John the Baptist. They were the delegation that came to John the Baptist to investigate this wild man in John chapter 1. They were present when Jesus cleaned out the money changers in the temple in John chapter 2. They argued with John's disciples over purification in John chapter 3. They opposed Christ when he healed a man on the Sabbath and argued with Christ concerning his authority to perform such an act in John chapter 5. They sought after Christ in order to continue their opposition of him after he fed the multitude. They hunted him down after after the feast or during the feast of booths in John chapter 7 and sent officers to arrest him during that celebration but no one laid a hand on him oh they know who Jesus is and they have been pursuing him since chapter 1 and although this passage may not fit within the text of this book the opposition of the Jews of the Pharisees most certainly fits into this chapter because they constantly wanted to kill him Because of everything that was coming from his divine lips. This moment again is no different. They bring to him this woman. She's caught in the act, the Bible says. She's caught in the act of adultery. And as she's caught in the act of adultery, and no doubt this was a setup, she's grabbed by the Pharisees, taken through the streets, dragged to Christ, thrown before his feet. Verse 4, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? Now they were quoting Exodus chapter 20 verse 14. And the death penalty is found in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. So legally, from a legal standpoint, they were right. She must die. But where was the man? Was he not also guilty? This is the indication that it was a setup. The law demanded that both were to be put to death. And here's another question. 
why not try this woman to put this woman on trial in their own courts, which was normally the case. Normally, if someone was caught breaking the law, they would have the Sanhedrin, which was the 70 elders. They would have them gather and they would try the woman and then they would send the woman or the man, whoever it was who broke the law. They would send them to Rome or to the Romans. And the Romans would execute judgment or at least execute punishment because it was not allowed by the Jewish community. So why bring him to Christ? He was no judge. He was not a part of the Sanhedrin. He was no, he was not legally, although Christ is called a rabbi, he's not legally a rabbi. He held no position, earthly speaking, in which he would be able to administer any kind of, ju- of judgment. So why Jesus? The Bible tells us the answer. Verse 6. They said this to test him, that they might have a charge to bring against him. Now, who are they going to charge? Or how are they going to charge him? To whom will they bring a charge against him to? If Jesus disagrees with stoning this woman, he would be, in effect, disagreeing and opposing the law of Moses. Therefore, he would be condemned by the Jews as being opposed to the law of Moses. Now, if he approves of stoning this woman, they go and report him to the Romans. Because in Roman community, it was illegal for a vassal nation or a conquered nation, which the Jews were, to execute any kind of judgment on their own. Because they're a conquered nation. So if Jesus says stoner, then they go to the Jews and say, this man is trying to incite a rebellion against the authority of Rome. He's in a conundrum. He's darned if he does and he's darned if he doesn't. So what does he do? Here's a a, a more interesting. And that's why you, you understand. That's why Caiaphas took Jesus to Pilate. Does that make sense for you? That's why Caiaphas could not execute judgment on himself. He had to go to Pilate because it was unlawful for them to put a man to death. You read that in the scriptures. So. What's he going to do? Here's another question that, as I was studying, I thought was important. How is the law which God commands? We have the verses for it. Exodus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter whatever it was, 10. How do we look at the law that God has commanded And how is grace administered in light of what God has already said must be done? Meaning this, if you sin, you die. How does God break his own law? Right? Where's mercy in this? How does mercy fit? Do you know that the law knows nothing of forgiveness? Do you understand that? That there is no law that speaks about forgiveness. The law only knows the law. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins will die. Romans 2.12 says or declares that all who have sinned under under the law will be judged by the law. So how does God forgive sinners without violating his own law? Are you with me? Yes. What did I tell you at members class or members meeting? Christian education. Are you taking notes? Some of you guys said you don't remember anything if you don't take notes. So your head should be down, right? It should be a question you should write down. How does God forgive sinners without violating his own law? Answer, through Jesus Christ. 
through the sacrificial death that Jesus Christ offered to fully satisfy the demands of God's justice for disobeying the law. That's the answer. So the answer of, of finding out how we deal with the struggle between law and grace is Christ. Christ is the answer to how God gets around his own law. He finds a way through himself, through his son, to fulfill the law. So that we could believe in him and be saved through his obedience and not ours. So that all glory would go to God and not you. Amen. Amen. Romans 8.3 says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. I have to read that again. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that Romans 3, 24 and 25 could be fulfilled. That those who put their faith in him would be justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Who God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith because he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. Amen. Amen. It is through Christ that the conundrum of law and grace can be reconciled. Because of his sacrificial death. The penalty of our sin has been paid. So that he can be both the just and justifier of those who have faith in him. Romans 3.26 Now back to this dramatic scene. What is he to do? This one has been exposed, humiliated, now facing the terrible possibility of being stoned. Which is not a good way to go. The scribes and Pharisees, elated, thinking they finally trapped this great man in a corner. He cannot escape. The crowd watches silently, waiting for the the response of Christ. And what does he do? He does one of the most intriguing things in all of Scripture. One of the things that baffles the minds of, of theologians from both sides of the spectrum. He bends down, verse 6, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. You, you who have watched the Passion of the Christ, remember that moment where he is drawing his finger across the sand. And it looks like he's setting off little firecrackers. But that's his answer. No answer. But more than that, what are you writing? Do you realize this is the only time in Scripture that, we, that, we, that is recorded that Jesus wrote anything? There is no account in all of Scripture that Jesus Christ writes anything. We have no books of his. We have nothing of his that he wrote. This is the only time where it says specifically Jesus wrote. And here's the big question. What did you write? And no one knows. What was he writing on the dust of the ground? Was there dust on the ground? Was he making inscriptions in the cement? What are you doing, Jesus? We want to know. But we don't know. And we're frustrated because we don't know. And John Calvin says, where the Bible is silent, we should also be silent. But we just can't help guessing. 
And here's some of the guesses. Some of the guesses are that he began to write the law. Others say that he was writing Jeremiah 13 uh, or Jeremiah 17, 3. Others say that he was writing a tic-tac-toe to simply ignore the accusers. No one knows. There's an opinion that I like, but I'll say, share with you in just a moment. But they continue to ask him. He stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down. He bent down and wrote on the ground. Jesus, what are you doing now? Here's what I like. Maybe they didn't notice at first what he was writing. But as they're pressuring him and then he stands up and says this and says, let you who has who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Here's what I like to imagine. I like to imagine that Jesus, as he said that, bent back down, looked at someone and said or wrote. Lie. And that person looked at what Jesus had wrote and maybe dropped his stone and said, and he looked at the next person and said, Excuse me. And that person threw down his stone and looked at another one and said, Adulterer. Wow. And, they down and they dropped their stone. Yes. That's what I like to think. Yes. But whatever it was, the wisdom of Jesus caused those would be murderers to walk away one by one. He was the only one out of all of them who rightfully possessed the power and the righteousness to, to pass any kind of judgment. And although he, hold, he held no position, he judged with wisdom. And they could not oppose his judgment. His reply was simple. It was so profound. It's a, it's, it's a reply that, that everybody, saved or not saved, knows, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> Throwing stones. They don't even know what comes from the Bible. <laughs> Why? Because of the wisdom and mercy that's found in that statement. Amen. And that originates from Christ, who is God in the flesh. Jesus is masterful. Answer. It neither minimized this woman's guilt, nor did, nor did it deny the law. There is no denying that this woman is a sinner. And there is no denying that the law should be held out. But he's extending the law to everyone. As the law was extended to you and I. To do what? To reveal our sin. He pulls the rug out from underneath the scribes and Pharisees. And revealed that he alone was worthy of judgment and they were unfit to judge. They were no match for his wisdom. The wisdom of God in the flesh. Three, the judgment of Christ. Verse nine, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. What a beautiful scene. The men who had come to stone this woman were shocked and devastated all at the same time. Shocked by what Jesus said, the, the profound judgment of Christ, and devastated. They were unprepared to handle his response. One by one, beginning with the older ones to the younger ones, they begin to walk away. One may say the older ones because they were wiser. This may be the case, but as a young person, I say maybe they have more sins to remember than the younger person. And that's why they walked away. Nevertheless, 
the older ones heard the judgment of Christ correctly and walked away, begin to drop their stones. They came to stone a person caught in sin. And they came face to face with their own sin. Their recognition of their sin, though, does not mean that they turn from their sin. It does not mean that because they recognized that they were sinners that they turned and followed Christ. Instead, they simply recognized that they were lawbreakers. Scribes and Pharisees most likely went home and tried to do better so that no one could say anything like this again to them. Jesus Christ judged correctly. And when we stand before Christ, he will once again judge correctly. And you and I, we will have no excuse. We will stand before the righteous one, the only righteous one. And we will give an account for our sin. And his judgment will be true. And our mouths will be closed. And his judgment, whether he is administering justice or whether he is offering mercy, again, it will be correct. And it will only be Christ who is doing this. His judgment will be right. Fourth and finally, the mercy or forgiveness of Christ. I looked at this and said, the mercy of Christ. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. All the accusers have left. There is only Jesus. And we don't know if the crowd is still there, but we're assuming the crowd is still there. And the crowd is probably, if they're still there, in shock, in awe, in amazement. No one's saying anything. But yet here is still this woman Who is afraid maybe to lift her head. Who again still has the hair covering her face. Whose face may be sweaty and filled with tears. And here comes Jesus standing up. And he approaches this woman. And I can imagine with the most compassionate and loving voice he says to her. Woman, where are they? And as she begins to take the hair out of her face and maybe wipe her eyes and and look around, she only sees the crowd who was sitting listening to Christ. And those stones that, that, that they came with to stone her are now laying at her feet, no longer in the hands of angry men who want to kill her. She says, there's, there's no one. No one, Lord. And his response to that woman as he possibly helps her up is... Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now, it's not a dismissal of sin. It's an act of mercy when someone deserves to die. It's an act of mercy when someone deserves to die. It's not a dismissal of sin. It's a, I have mercy on you in the midst of your sin. This is grace at its finest. This is a call to follow Christ. This is a call to repent and turn from sin. This is the same call that was given to you. When you were found in the darkness that you were living in. You may not have been caught in the act of adultery. But you were caught in the act of sin. 
And your sin was revealed to you. And though you deserve death, mercy came. And though you deserve punishment, grace was given. Why? So that you would repent, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ. And brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, the same offer is given to you this morning. That if you turn from your sins and turn to Christ, you will recognize that it is through Christ and Christ alone that you can be forgiven of your sins. And it's through Christ and Christ alone that you will find mercy and grace and light of your guilt. Trust and believe in Him. Turn to Christ. Turn from sin. When you do, you will find that He is a perfect Savior. You will find that He is the satisfier and sustainer of your souls. You will find that He is the filler of the emptiness that you have sought after all of your life. Young people and old people, hear me. This is not a message for an age group. It is a message for all who have ears to hear. Turn to Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him alone. In Him alone is salvation. Apart from Him, you are guilty of your sin. And you will walk away knowing you are a sinner. And you will face judgment if you do not trust in Christ. Who will be the one administering judgment? The same one you may reject this morning if you do not turn to Him. Did this woman turn from her sins? Traditionally, it's believed that this woman is Mary Magdalene. And that she's the same one who came to Jesus with the alabaster bottle of perfume and broke it at his feet and wiped it with her hair. It is believed that this is the same woman who was going to spice the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the same woman who first Christ appeared to. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. So we may not know what happened to this woman. But what about you? Because we will know what happens to you. What will you do? Jesus' admonition and command to her was go. And from now on, sin no more. For those who have trusted in Christ this morning, He's doing and calling us to the same command. Go and sin no more. And I would imagine that it is followed by and follow me and take up your cross and die daily and and experience the joy and the satisfaction that is found in me alone, Christ alone. And for those who have done that this morning, I welcome you to this merciful table. I welcome you to this table to fellowship with your master who saved you from the guilt and shame that you were found in. And the guilt and shame that the enemy of your soul, Satan, still tries to accuse you of every single day. But that the advocator of your soul says, no, that person is marked and dipped in my blood. You have no right to accuse. For those who have placed their faith in Christ alone, I invite you to celebrate the victory that Christ has won on our behalf at the cross. I welcome you to partake in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was broken and shed for you. I invite you to celebrate redemption accomplished on our behalf for those adulterers, we murderers, we thieves, we liars, we adulterers, we haters of our neighbors, we envious, we deceivers. 
who have been accused by Satan but who have been rescued by Christ from damnation. I invite you to celebrate redemption applied here and now. That you can respond by grace to the call of Christ to turn from sin. And because of the indwelling Spirit of God, you are free now to turn to Christ and enjoy obedience to His Word. Slaves who now have a new slave master. I invite you to come and celebrate the redemption that will be in the future consummated. Oh, when we see the clouds break forth, we will shout for joy along with the trumpets at the arrival of our majestic King who will take home His bride. And we will enjoy this feast with Him face to face. We will be with Him forever. We will enjoy our groom, our bridegroom, for eternity to the honor and glory of our great God. So come this morning, saints. Come and fellowship with Him. Come and feast upon Him. Come and receive the grace that is given as through these means, through this ordinance. Come and fellowship with Him. The one who grabbed you by the hand and said, Neither do I condemn you. Let's stand.